0: Fashion legend Marigay McKee has risen from lipstick girl at Harrods to a major leader of some of the biggest luxury brands in the world. After working as a retail clerk and teacher for many years, she was offered the opportunity to become an executive at Estee Lauder Europe, and from there, launched a 20-year career in luxury retail. She eventually rose to the pinnacle of London's retail world when she rejoined Harrods, this time as a senior beauty buyer, and over a 15-year period at the helm of buying and product strategy, advanced to become the store's chief merchant. Through the implementation of Marigay's strategic vision and her philosophy on exclusivity, Harrods attracted a greater share of high-end luxury clients than ever before. Marigay subsequently crossed the pond to become president of Saks Fifth Avenue in New York, where she evolved a new vision for the iconic brand's luxury and positioning platform. She is also an advisor to several emerging fashion brands in the United Kingdom and the United States, mentoring young talent and young entrepreneurs. In 2015, Marigay started her own consulting firm, MM Lux Consulting which helps world-class brands like Tommy Hilfiger and Harper's Bazaar develop winning strategies for marketing, positioning, and growth.
1: If you want to go and make a luxury purchase today and you want to buy a Rolex watch, you're not just going to go into a store and buy the watch. You're going to go online, you're going to do your research, you're going to look at all the different styles, you're going to look at all the different prices. Then you're going to go and put into an app which is the least expensive price for the same good. Then you're going to decide if you want to buy a new one, a vintage one, or one that is 50 years old, and then you're going to probably bid for the price and actually make an offer on a price that might not even be, I mean, that is just leagues away from where retail was 10 years ago.
0: In this conversation with Ivy's Carrie Jones, Marigay goes in-depth about what it takes to build a powerhouse fashion brand and what the future of the industry might look like. Please enjoy our conversation with Marigay McKee. You're listening to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life, and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. For more information about the Ivy community and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us at membership at Ivy.com.
2: We are here today with mayor Gay McKee. She is the founder of MM Lux Consulting, but many of you will know her from her prestigious career in the fashion industry. Um, so, thank you so much for joining us and having us in your home. Thank you very much for coming. <laughs> so, I would love to touch on the beginning of your career. I always love hearing the stories about, you know, what were your career aspirations when you were younger and and uh, before you. Took on these larger positions um, in the industry. So I was a, um, a teacher when I left university. Um,
1: I taught English in Madrid. I did my TEFL exam so I could teach English as a foreign language, and I taught English in uh, Spain. And um, I loved teaching, and I loved it because I also I love the children, but I also had three months holiday every summer so every summer I would go to the United States and take a group of 30 students to the US and I spent a summer at Harvard I spent a summer in Vermont I spent a summer in California um, with these exchange students and then American students would go to Spain and Spanish students would come here and so you know and I loved it and that was sort of my my, my first taste of America um, just out of university and then um, while I was A teacher um, I was approached by a headhunter and they were looking for somebody um, in the education department of Clinique in Estee Lauder who had to speak fluent English because all of the um, courses and all of the information at Estee Lauder which was based in New York were in um, were written in English so um, anyway I jokingly said to the headhunter well if you pay me double what I'm earning as a teacher I'll think about it Not ever thinking that they would come back and say, "Absolutely." So I'd like to think that there was a more altruistic um, reason for my getting into um, brands and retail. But the reality of the situation was I was forfeiting 16 weeks' holiday a year for double the salary and not that many holidays per year. (laughs) Um, But you know, it worked out. It was a it was a time and a place, and uh, I ended up going to interview with uh, Estee Lauder and Clinique, and I got a job offer from both and i uh, and i started with clinique
2: oh that's great and impressive and you you really had an extensive career at harrods um, yeah
1: so i mean after after spending several years at um, at clinique and estee lauder working initially in the education department and then moving into sales and and via pr and marketing i was lucky i was working in a catholic country and uh A Catholic country um, has, you know, people have a lot of babies, so I was always filling in a maternity cover, and that's how I actually got promoted. I'd like to think it was because of my talent, but the reality of the situation was every time somebody got pregnant, I would do that maternity leave, so therefore I got experience with PR, marketing, sales, and uh, and education, but it was largely to do with the birth rate in Spain, not with my uh, instinctive talent, I think.
2: That's amazing. <laughs> That's a unique story. It's definitely a unique story, yeah. So then take us to, how did you start um, in Harrods. London? Mm-hmm. So um, I left Spain to, um,
1: to get married, and um, I was going moving back to the UK, and Harrods approached me because they knew I had been at Clinique in Estee Lauder, and Harrods approached me to run their beauty division and so I actually started as the Head of Beauty Buying for Harrods and um, loved it and was very fortunate to become the GMM of cosmetics and fragrance shortly a a year and a half later and uh, then I um, became the Head of Accessories a couple of years later, again somebody left the company I took their job and they added it to to my responsibility and then a couple of years later, I became the fashion director. And then a couple of years later, the group fashion director, which covered all of fashion and beauty, so fashion accessories, etc. Which um, you know, Harrods is a is a unique store, so it was a it was a great privilege. And you know, I loved Harrods; I didn't want to leave. So rather than leave every couple of years, I got an additional new area. So it was it was great because I started with lipsticks and then I was doing handbags and then I was doing jewelry and then I was doing fashion and then I was overseeing overseeing all of that all of that area and I loved it I absolutely loved it and then um, a couple of years later when I was managing about um, 10 of the business areas and uh, 10 GMMs I became the the chief merchant the CMO of
2: the company. Wow that's impressive Um, did you along the way did you see A direction for that path or was it just you kept running and taking on it always
1: sounds terrible when you say that I didn't see the direction and I didn't see the path I'm actually a lot less ambitious than people would think when they first meet me or they say oh you know she was running this or she was running that but the reality of the situation was I was always very lucky and I was always kind of in the right place at the right time and the one thing that I did do is I always worked really hard so I think that um I was never I don't think I was necessarily the smartest in the room I do think I was probably one of the most hard-working and I also was always nice you know I don't think that I think it's difficult sometimes people say you have to be really tough to get to certain positions but I also think people don't necessarily like working for overly tough people so I can be tough but if you're tough and fair you're going to get on but if you're tough and not nice it's not a good combo It's a short lived combo. It might work for the short term, but it's not going to work for a long term strategy, especially not in business. So, my father always used to say to me, um, you know, charm is one of the most underutilized weapons in business. And I really believe that because if you're going to choose who you do business with, you're, you know, why wouldn't you do business with somebody who's charming and who's nice? It's just so much a more enjoyable experience. And most of us spend more of our time at work than we do at home. And therefore, it's important that, you know, you surround yourself with people that have values and that are nice. And, that you know, the word nice maybe is, is, is too generic. But, you know, dignity, integrity, integrity um, values, and goals, right? And so normally people that have dignity, integrity, and values, you're going to kind of enjoy working for them, I think. Right. And they're going to be motivational and inspirational. And I was very, very fortunate because I had... Um, a great boss at Estee Lauder. I had a great boss at Harrods, and you know I I learned a lot. It was a it was a it was a great journey, and I was very fortunate that you know in the nearly fourteen years that I was at Harrods, I had seven promotions. So life never got boring because every two years my job role changed, and so that actually meant that I think that's one of the reasons that I stayed there for so long. You know I I. Actually, had I not had the call to come to America, I think I probably would still be there today, you know, and I would still be happy. I used to think I had the best job in the world every day when I went up those central escalators in the store. I used to think, wow, this is so great. You know, I started um, 20 years prior as a Saturday girl while I was at university because my parents were really stingy with my allowance. And so I worked um, at Harrods on Saturdays and to then, you know, be going up the escalators every morning and thinking, wow, I've made it to fashion director or wow, I've made it to chief merchant was a really good sense of achievement. And, um, you know, whilst my father always did think, could you not have done something more than be a shop girl? (laughs) The reality of the situation was other people didn't see it like that. So I was lucky for that reason.
2: That's great. And... So you kind of led us in a little bit to the transition to start working at SACS, but can you describe maybe what um, how you took making that personal decision? Because it's a big move. It was very hard country. for me, actually, because
1: I had an offer to go and do a CMO role in Paris, and I had a role, uh, an offer to come and, and, and be the president of a company here in the United States. And, you know, I had two children who at the time were... Um, 14 well 15 actually 15 and 17 and so it was quite hard because 15 and 17 that it, it you know my son was about to do his a-levels my daughter was about to do her o-levels and suddenly their mom was talking about moving to paris or new york and we were sitting at the breakfast table one day and i said to my children you know these are the options i can i stay where i am and uh, wait for the then ceo to retire but he's not planning to retire at 60, so it's going to be 65, so it's another five years, or we can move to Paris or we can move to New York. And um, I was divorced, um, and my children were very happy at school. We had a very uh, very good life, I loved my job, I loved my children, and we had a very strong family unit, and so we always made the decisions together. It was always the power of three. And so my children said, there is no way we're ever moving to Paris. You can live in Paris and come home at the weekends. We're not moving. New York, however, they were like, we're coming. We all want to go to New York and we all want to study in America. So there wasn't really, it it, it was a difficult decision, but it was a decision that my parents were very supportive of. They were like, you've always wanted to do that. My children were like, mom, it's gonna be so fun. And all our friends will come visit us, which is very interesting because when you live in New York, different than if you live in another European capital, for example, I think we probably saw people more by living in New York than if we had moved to Brussels or Berlin, because just so many more people come to New York. And so I felt that it was known territory to me because I had traveled to New York for so many years looking at American fashion designers and going to all the American fashion shows and showrooms. So you know, I always I, I, always loved the aesthetic of Michael Kors and Oscar de la Renta and Carolina Herrera. And I always loved the sort of American lifestyle as depicted by Slim Arons in the Jackie Kennedy era. And so I had this very romantic view of, this is going to be great, we're going to move to New York, the dog is going to love Central Park, and life's going to be great. You know, we're going to live on Fifth Avenue with a great view. I didn't really take into consideration how different Moving countries was and how different so many things that I took for granted every day in London were just different here And it's not just tea versus coffee or a scone versus a bagel It was a little bit more than that, you know, it's just it's it's people's attitudes. It's people's approach Um, People are far more PC here people are far more guarded here in a working environment um, If I if I was at a table sitting at a round table in London at a meeting and I said what does everybody think about this I would get six varying views and people would be honest and they would give their opinions here it wasn't that people weren't honest people were lovely here but they would be more guarded about their views they would be more concerned about what different people would think about their views so I had to adjust to things like it meetings were a bit less productive if I'm for example in the sense that you would go back to your desk and then suddenly you'd get a slew of emails. Actually, I thought this, and actually I thought that, and actually I thought that. But they weren't as prepared to voice their concerns or their opinions or their opportunities in case anybody thought anything of it. And so that's, from a in, in the professional environment, that's, that's a point of difference, I think, versus Europe. I think we're a bit more lackadaisical in Europe. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing or a good thing, it's just a different so you need to learn here to ask the questions that are going to get you the answers that you want to hear rather than just be vague because vague doesn't really work in America. People want specifics and they want to have be pinned down. The other thing that's very interesting is that I come from a culture in, in, in England whereby you kind of step back and you undersell yourself. And in America, people often oversell themselves and so I, I I couldn't understand you know like here I would always be like you know say to my children you know always let others go first always let others speak always you know don't necessarily be the person that's always putting up the ha- that's always and it was very interesting because here it's okay you know the culture the American dream is that anybody can achieve anything in their life and everybody can be president And everybody can be a celebrity on social media, and everybody can be, you know, can can, can be who they want to be and who they aspire to be. And I think parents, you know, bring children up to believe that. And I think we sometimes have the sort of limitations in the UK of, you know, you've always got to, you know, you've got to be humble. You can't be arrogant. You can't be this. You can't be that. Which is not to say it is arrogant. It's just a much more, it's a much different way. Of, uh, of viewing life and interaction. And so I think, you know, I definitely see more competitiveness here, and maybe that's why America is so much more dynamic. You know, like now, when I look, go back to Europe, I think that Europe is a bit slow in comparison to the vibe that I feel working here in America. And therefore, I think things get done, things do get, get done here, but it's just, it's very different. I think if you're a go-getting type of person here and you're, I hate the word aggressive, but maybe if you're very dynamic um, and if you have charm and you have charisma, I think there's more opportunity for people to get on here than there is
2: perhaps in Europe. And so did you have to change your leadership style in any way when you were at sex taking on such a big role? for? I think for I was viewed as eccentric and eclectic
1: by my peers and by um, my teams, but I, I think they were very they were very welcoming and they were very um, accepting of that. I think they thought it was a bit different, so it was a bit fun. Um, I think the sense of humour is that's a lost cause. I mean, whenever I'm being serious people think I'm joking, and when I'm joking people think I'm being serious. So, therefore, the British sense of humour does leave sometimes a lot to be desired in the American... um, I I, I would literally sometimes look at people and they would have a look of horror on their face. And I'm like, it's a joke. But then actually when I was being deadly serious, people would be like, ha, ha, ha. And you're like, no, no, there's no ha, ha, ha. This is serious. So I think that there's, you know, there are cultural differences. And I think that there's an opportunity, you know, in terms of when we're talking about um, women in the workplace, for example, and, and again, not to not to be sexist in any way but you know america has 17 percent women ceos so um that number needs to get that number needs to needs to increase and i think in order for it to increase people's attitudes towards women do need to change in the sense that you know and this is not about equal pay or equal footing or things like that this is more about attitudes actual attitudes about how women are perceived in the workplace and the contribution and you know the fact that i was reading the other day i don't know if this is a if this is a if this is a true fact but i was reading the other day that 47% of women in america that go to business school um drop out after they have their children and don't go back into the workplace well if that's a true statistic and again someone needs to research that because i was just reading about that the other day but if that's a true statistic that's such a shame you know because there should be an opportunity there should be a way Of helping women get back into the workplace even if they have children they shouldn't have to choose between having children and Having a career. I was very fortunate. I had a mother close by who for 15 years in her retirement came by my house every day did baths did homework and uh, Helped me with the children and moved in when I was traveling to Europe Not everybody has that luxury and not everybody can have round-the-clock childcare, which in some jobs you kind of need if you really are going to be taking off to go to Tokyo or taking off to go to the Middle East or etc so I think culturally there are some opportunities for change and I think um you know empowering women in the workplace and um empowering our daughters to um understand that the you know there doesn't have to be a glass ceiling and we can break that glass ceiling I think is very very important and i I'm very pleased to be part of um, a lot of different um, groups that that really promote, you know, how do we keep women in the workplace? You know, I, I constantly hear people in private equity and in um, hedge funds talking about the lack of women in these in, in these industries. And, you know, so what do we do to secure more female partners in, in, in that? And I think, so therefore, attitudes in the workplace have to change, but also I think women have to have A lot more confidence in their ability and have to operate in the same way that men operate you know the 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 world of uh, work is a chessboard and one has to learn to navigate that chessboard and understand when to move a queen and when to move a king and uh, when to play checkmate and our male counterparts do that very well so we have to get better at playing chess
2: right I think that's a good point and I and I agree with your points on women leadership roles Um, and I'd love to even dive into your career a little bit more, but I'd also like to turn it to the future and what you're doing now, yeah. Um, and how you, you know, took the risk of leaving a established corporate environment for so many years, and now you're an entrepreneur in your own right, and you've started your own business, M.M. Lux Consulting. Can you tell us a little bit about it? You know what? It's a it's it's a
1: it's a tiny little firm, but we're we're very strategic. We have very niche clients, but we we provide a service that. Um, I think isn't necessarily out there so we've been very fortunate in that we've been able to grow in the last two years and um, for the first time in my life I don't work for somebody else I don't work for a big corporation I don't work for a known brand you know my whole life I've really only worked for Estee Lauder Harrods and Saks and those are all brands that most people know so therefore you know when you say to people oh you know I'm a consultant People are sort of like, oh, okay, what, what, what do you consult then? You know, like uh, it was. It's it's quite amusing. And so you know, it's funny because a lady was asking me the other day at a, at a very shishi party in the Hamptons. You know what do you do? And I said, I'm a consultant. And she said, you know, what brands do you work for? And I said, oh, you know, related, American Express. And I named a few of my clients. And she said, oh, do you make the uniforms for American Express? And I was like, what? <laughs> no. She said, but I thought you were fashion. What do you do? So it's, diff- it's, it's a different kind of life, you know. So for some of our clients, it's business strategy. For some of our clients, it's international distribution. For some of our clients, it's working on real estate leasing. Um, which is it's it's a very interesting one today and I'm very fortunate that you know my biggest client which is related industries um, who have real estate they have hotels um, they bought Equinox they bought SoulCycle and it's very interesting because um, my my biggest client which is, is related they have three projects that they're developing at the moment Hudson Yards here in New York Silicon Valley out in California and a project in LA One's opening 2018, one 2020, one 2021. So that's lucky for me because I have a runway in front of me with with, with related. And and one of the things that I do is work on leasing plans and, and retail strategy with them. But what I love about it is that in the old days, we used to have a department store or we used to have a store. And that guaranteed you that people were going to go and visit you. They were going to go and visit that mall. They were going to go and visit that store. In today's world it's much more about entering a community and uh, you know having an experience and so therefore I love what related to doing because their concept is not just about shopping their concept is about living working dining exercising entertaining hospitality and shopping giving the consumer many more reasons to go to that area and I think you know when you look at, if you're, if you're buying, if you're a young person and you're buying an apartment, why wouldn't you want to buy an apartment somewhere that has cinemas and that has, you know, great shops and great cafes and great restaurants and great, where you again become part of something. And so I think that one of the reasons why I, I was so happy to start working so soon after I left Saks with Related was that they do see the future of retail in, in the same way that I do, as part of something a lot bigger, as part of a complex group of communities that interact. And you might have your office there, and you might have your gym there, and you might have your hair salon there, but it, it would be what in the old days you would call a neighborhood. And today it's a community, but it really is a neighborhood, but it's a new, a new age neighborhood. You know, doctors and medical services are going to be in malls today you're going to have theater and you're going to have you know we've got ice rinks in dubai and ski slopes in dubai to create entertainment um in in, in russia you've got uh, you know fake beaches in sort of outer siberia that people can go and get sort of like uva <laughs> uva and, and put bikinis on which they wouldn't normally do you know and i think it's um When you look at um, Asia and a lot of the things that they're doing there in terms of entertainment and uh, new age strategies to really engage the consumer in in an emotional way, I think that there is, it's so exciting. You know, we haven't talked about digital, but I mean, digital and technology have um, really reshaped the way that consumers shop today and the way that consumers think and have given a lot more there's a lot more knowledge and the the consumers today are just far more discerning than they ever were. If you want to go and make a luxury purchase today and you want to buy a Rolex watch, you're not just going to go into a store and buy the watch. You're going to go online, you're going to do your research, you're going to look at all the different styles, you're going to look at all the different prices. Then you're going to go and put into an app, which is the least expensive price for the same good. Then you're going to decide if you want to buy a new one, a vintage one, or one that is 50 years old, And then you're going to probably bid for the price and actually make an offer on a price that might not even be... I mean, that is just leagues away from where retail was 10 years ago. You know, in in the 80s, retail was transactional. It was all about the stores were the kings and the consumers came in and did what... They bought into what the king sold them. You know, in the 90s, retail was all about nurturing and the stores became like hospitals the consumers became like patients the doctors would write a prescription for what those um, patients had to uh, buy and the concept of personal shopping developed and you know people were it was all about nurturing the consumer as opposed to dictating to the consumer but in today's world it's moved from dictating to the consumer to nurturing the consumer to today actually having you know the stores have become the hosts And the customers have become the guests. And the hosts invite the guests to experience their brand. And that's true experiential retail, You know where you basically are opening your home in the same way that you would open your brand to these new age consumers, understanding that they may buy, they may come and have a great experience in bricks and mortar and go home and buy online, or they may do all of of their research online and then come in and buy in bricks and mortar. It's um, in bricks and mortar. It's, it's it's an omni-channel seamless retail experience. And, you know, you have the huge, huge um, growth from Amazon, which was over 50% of, you know, all uh, online sales last year in the U.S. and is now nearly 10% of total U.S. retail. You've got the growth of Farfetch, which has far exceeded a lot of people's ex- expectations as a, as a global marketplace. And then you've got the net a the Moda Operandi's, the... Style bops, the shop bops, the MyTeresa.coms. you know, there is so much opportunity. If you're a woman and you want to buy a, let's get, let's get an example, a Celine blouse, you've got 25 different portals to be able to do that. In the old days, you had one store on Madison Avenue, and that was the only place that you could buy your Celine blouse. So therefore, that's really created a shift.
2: Right. And I think a lot of designers now, especially in luxury, are feeling that shift I think the whole industry is transitioning in a number of ways, with designers stepping down, cl- you know, big re- big designers closing stores all over the country. So you you think the future is still going to have a physical space? It's just going to be more experiential. I think
1: I think the physical space is always going to be important because there's always going to be the consumers that want to touch and feel and experience the product. I think that um, consumers that are going to survive, the, the, sorry, the stores that are going to survive and the brands that are going to survive have to be very aware of the consumer's needs and wants and desires and therefore give them a great experience. When you look today at what 4510 is doing as a, as a mixed um, mixed brand store, when you look at what the line is doing, when you look at what the Webster are doing, these are all relatively new retail concepts that intertwine brands and intertwine experiences and and, and they feed on the customer emotion. And, and they immediately wouldn't even think about not taking your bags to your car. They wouldn't even not think about offering you a glass of water as soon as you're going through the door. If they see that you're trying to send a text or you're trying to send an email, send an email instead of looking down at you, they're actually offering you a chair where you can complete your email in comfort. Those sorts of things are becoming increasingly important. So I don't think it's the end of the bricks and mortar Experience. I do think that the three O's with the the, uh, online, the off price and the outlets are killing full price standard retail. But I think there is an opportunity for those retailers to really reshape, reshift and get on with doing what, what, what the customer wants them to do. I think the other the other situation that's changing is that when you look at the online portals, you've got an average age of 30, 35 buying on some of those big online portals, whereas with the department stores, you know, in America, the average ages range from 48 to 55. That's Those are the people with the money and, you know, they're aging. So clearly the millennials are buying in a very different way. You know, we have five children between us and, you know, I have to tell you that not one of those five children shops in a department store. Now that doesn't mean that they would never shop in a department store. If they were with one of us and we were paying, then they would shop in a department store. But they're not as likely to go into... A large-scale or upscale department store and have a blowout in a department store they're just not going to do that if they're a millennial whereas they are going to go into a dry bar and do a $40 blowout in 40 minutes and know that they're going to pay $40 and come out 40 minutes later with a great blowout they are going to go and get a $20 manicure in somewhere where they know the name is trusted and they can go in and be out in 30 minutes and get a great manicure and I think that the other difference with Millennials is that they want it now They are not prepared to wait the way we used to. They are not prepared to. Their time is very important to them. You know, the average millennial spends what six to eight hours on their phone. I don't know when people sleep today, but six to eight hours on their phone, and you know, their time is precious. And those moments when they are having a service, they'll use it by being on their phone. But at the same time, and 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 by connecting with their group and with their social, their social network. But at the same time, you know. Their habits are changing. Their habits are very different. They don't want to really go and hang out at the mall. They hang out on their phones. They don't want to really connect with people by necessarily going on dates to the cinema or dates. They might go on dates online right. before they actually meet up, you know?
2: Right, and so are there any brands that you feel that are maybe new to the, the fashion industry or industries in general that you feel like are capturing the market um, and doing you know, their job well? I mean there's so many it's it's so difficult
1: to to even put a even put a finger on it but I mean there's so many young brands that are working really well but there's so many online brands as well I mean lulus.com for prom dresses and dresses for people to go out I hadn't even heard of it a year ago and today it's doing hundreds of millions of dollars in turnover um you know Kylie Jenner Cosmetics two years ago didn't exist last year she did 310 million dollars and she's 19 years old and she her only marketing is snapchat and her only revenue stream was dtc on KylieJenner.com. so 310 million dollars in 2995 lipsticks and you're selling 250,000 of them every friday it is not bad going for you know now clearly that's a that's a that's an isolated incident because when you have 100 million followers on instagram clearly you could put a pen out and you're going to sell out of that pen or this, but it's you know it's an example. Um, I, listen, I just met two girls the other day from a brand called Universal Standard, who gorgeous girls, and just couldn't find clothes in certain sizes, and so they've created a plus size, which is all DTC, um, really simple to wear shapes, um, actually quite chic, ponchos, beautiful like floaty dresses, um, great knits great prices, everything under $500. They're doing incredible stuff. And, you know, it's called Universal Standard. And the big USP, the the thing that was very different for them is they offered anyone that changed their size to go back and get another another outfit in the right size. Complimentary, free of charge. So they've basically written in a two-for-one into their business model. But imagine the service. Only one person in 100 may take them up on that, but... It gives great it gives a great feeling and I think that's another thing that the one thing we hadn't talked about in terms of future trends and I think that's very important in today's world is give back, philanthropy, give back and social consciousness. And I think that the other trend and I wish I'd said it actually when you were asking me before about the trends because um, karma is very important in today's world. There could be bad karma before and no one ever knew about it. And no one ever bought into that. Unfortunately today, with the advent of mobile phones and the advent of camera phones, as we well know from several CEOs who have been uh, the subject of, of, of recent cases, you cannot have bad behavior because you get bad karma. And because someone somewhere is capturing it, whether it's someone being dragged off a plane, whether it's someone being abusive to an Uber driver, or whether it's someone losing their rag at a car hire, you someone's going to somewhere is going to record that. So therefore, in terms of um, karma, I think it's really important to have good karma. And I think consumers look for that. They care about that. They also care about give back. If 10% of the proceeds of the coffee that they're drinking is going to go to a women's commune in Africa, that is going to help them develop a macroeconomic project people are more likely to enjoy that cup of coffee they're more likely to feel good about spending four dollars on that organic cup of coffee and i think in the same way philanthropy and the brands of tomorrow that have to align themselves with causes that are not just aligning themselves to have a cause but aligning themselves so that it's actually a meaningful cause that really means something I think that's really important, and I think in the old days, people could get away without worrying about where their plastic bags were made, without worrying about the fact that they didn't have a cause, without worrying about if they were polluting the environment or not, and unfortunately, or fortunately, I should say, today, you do have to worry about those things. You have to worry about, is it a fair trade factory? Are we paying the workers adequate wages? Is there child labor? Um, Is this plastic recycled? Um, Is this cardboard box being made in the right way? Are we doing what we can to reduce, you know, um, our carbon footprint? And so, um, you
2: know, those sorts of things. Right. Well, this has um, really been... Great to sit down with you and hear all of these points, and I could go on and on and sit here for hours. But I know we want to be sensitive of your time. Um, just quickly, I guess, what's your? Do you have a vision for, you know, your your company now and where you see that growing? I'm just very happy that it's still, that it's going and that it's going well, and that we've got
1: great clients who who I get on with and who I feel that you know we can add value to. And um, I'm very lucky to be surrounded by a team of very smart young ladies who are all very hard working in fact they're all upstairs now at the grind but you know who who support me in in what we do and you know it's funny because um I don't know why I haven't hired a guy yet but we're all women and um it's funny most of my clients with the exception of related that have hired me have all been women and I find that very interesting as well so I think that um you know there's a there's a lot of opportunities for us to grow Um, We have only just touched the surface. The consulting is is going well, and I think in this climate, because there is so much flux and there is so much change, we're in a good spot for some of our very niche clients to work with them on high net worth strategies or on collaborative partnerships with brands or out-of-the-box ideas. Um, And then six months ago, I set up a small, very small fund called Fernbrook, Um, with um, two ex-investment bankers one in Silicon Valley and one here in New York so that we could actually invest in young startups because I was just seeing so many young people and so many startups that have such a good opportunity to grow and just need some sort of strategic resource and need some investment so that's going really you know that's really a passion of mine. MM Lux Consulting is great because it keeps my children at college. It pays for their apartments. I'm very hoping that they start working soon so that they can start to pay for their own, uh, own apartments and their and, and their own uh, their own futures, but um, I'm very happy to do so. So MM Lux Consulting basically funds all of that. Whereas Fernbrook I see as the future. And Fernbrook I see as investing in great ideas, investing in people that I think really have got something special about them and who can really deliver. You know, we've been uh, looking at uh, everything from uh, technology companies to a great mattress company, you know, made in the USA, developed in Brooklyn, um, a a great um, cup of coffee that stays hot all day, and uh, we've been pushing them towards uh, creating baby products so that the milk bottles can help a lot of young mums that are on the go that are always worried about temperature of the milk etc to um, fashion and lifestyle projects that that we think are great and, and and beauty beauty companies you know so I think there's so much opportunity in today's world and I always think that change brings about opportunity and I'm always a glass half full girl I'm not a glass half empty girl so I think that change brings about opportunity and in the same way that this country's going through a lot of change right now and there's a lot of things that need to be fixed but there's also a lot of opportunity to fix things how lucky are we to live in a country where you know entrepreneurship is 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 valued and where people have got freedom of speech and where we can really work together to make the world a better place you know and i think that i i personally think this is a great opportunity in time i'm very excited to, to be around, to see to see everything that's going on right now in the
2: world. Well, it sounds like you and your company will be a big part of that. Companies, I should say. Um, so we're excited to watch you and see where you go. And thank you again for your time and having us in your home today. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming.
0: Thanks again for tuning in to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life.